0: The 2020 presidential election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden was one of the most divisive in modern American history. Taking place in the shadow of the coronavirus pandemic, and at a time when partisanship had split the country virtually in half, the election was a referendum on President Trump's tattered legacy. Any economic progress made since 2016 ground to a halt during the pandemic, which also took the lives of over 200,000 Americans. This summer, President Trump's response to protests over the killing of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis was widely condemned. As forest fires raged in California, it seemed as if his adamant climate denial was falling
1: on increasingly deaf ears. Throughout 2020, it became increasingly clear to many that the election was a critical turning point. Biden's campaign projected stability with plans to address COVID 19 more seriously, begin to meaningfully fight climate change, and de-escalate international tensions. With the stakes as high as they were, some pundits call this election a, quote, battle for America's soul. In such an election, with this kind of tension in the background, it is imperative that both candidates pledge allegiance to the rule of law by respecting the results of the election. And yet, as November drew
0: closer, President Trump refused to commit to a peaceful transition of power. He repeatedly questioned the security of mail-in voting as part of a broader strategy to portray the American voting system as unfair and incapable of preventing voter fraud. In the wake of the election, Trump insisted that his loss was the result of foul play, and millions of his supporters agreed in a mass expression of doubt in the fairness of our electoral system. In this episode of BP Radio, we'll be examining the claims President Trump has made in his bid to question the fairness of the election. In doing so, we'll try to place President Trump's actions in the context of American history and ask what the long-term effects will be for our democracy. From the Brown Political Review, I'm Rachel Lim. And I'm
1: Annika Sigstadt. This is BP Radio. To start, what can we make of President Trump's claims of weak election security? Trump's attacks on our vote counting process have been disputed by a number of officials at all levels of government, who have been working on securing the integrity of our elections. One such official is Rhode Island Secretary of State, Nellie Gorbea, who spoke with us before the election. She talked about how the state was handling the 2020 elections and mail-in voting.
2: I think what I share with the people raising these concerns is uh, a concern about the integrity of our election system. We absolutely have to make sure that there's integrity in our elections. Having said that, our mail ballot system today is extremely secure. Uh, and, and and that's thanks to some technology and thanks to some of the pre-existing structures. Our mail ballot system has always relied on the verification of, of the voter's signature. That was, that's always been its key security feature. It wasn't witnesses, it wasn't the notary, it was the signature being verified. Uh, so that hasn't changed. However, as technology has uh, become more available, we've been slowly integrating uh, technology that really makes it uh, easier to keep the system more secure. So the central voter registration system has digitized signatures. Uh, We've just purchased a machine to the Board of Elections, which they're partially using right now. But in the future, that machine will be able to actually compare digitized signatures on the oath envelopes to digitized signatures in the voter registration database. The the concerns that a lot of people have, like, oh, I'm just going to ask for a mail ballot, and then I'm going to go vote at the polls. Well, again, we have a central voter registration system because it's centralized. You're already tagged as getting a mail ballot. And if you don't uh, it doesn't matter. You can show up and say the dog ate my ballot. I don't have it. They're not going to give you a live ballot to put into the into the machine. They're going to give you a ballot that goes into a provisional envelope, and you have to explain in the provisional ballot uh, envelope why it is that you need a second ballot. And that will those provisional ballots are the last ballots counted, and they make sure that there's no other ballot that would have your name on it to to, to so that we can make sure that there's no double votes.
1: With all these safeguards in place nationally, the security of the 2020 election was never in doubt. Americans worried about the fairness of the election should be concerned not by external interference, but by the threat coming from the White House. To provide some historical context that could help us understand Trump's anti-democratic behavior, we spoke with Brown professor Richard Ehrenberg, who worked for more than 34 years on Capitol Hill prior to the election. He emphasized how risky, Dangerous and undemocratic it was for the president to challenge the legitimacy of the election results.
3: I think it's really unprecedented. You know, if if I were to compare it internationally, uh, you know, I'd I'd be I'd be reaching for examples like uh, like Mussolini in Italy, which I I generally don't like to go there. I mean, to go that far in terms of criticizing. Uh, uh, someone in American politics, but I, uh, I, I think the, the situation is pretty dramatic in this instance.
0: What Professor Ehrenberg finds most dramatic is the way that Trump's delegitimizing rhetoric plays into his refusal to peacefully transfer power. He reminds us that this is in stark contrast to what happened in the 2000 election, when Al Gore peacefully conceded to Bush despite winning the popular vote.
3: Well, of course, course we don't know yet about 2020 whether it will be kind of a razor-thin edge like we saw in 2000, Uh, but one contrast that leaps to mind is, of course, uh, President Trump's unwillingness to uh, commit himself to the peaceful transfer of power, and Al Gore in uh, 2001 was uh, really the, uh, uh, in some ways, kind of a poster child for peaceful transfer. Even though he and many of his supporters felt that he was being unfairly denied the presidency, uh, that the count should have continued, that the Supreme Court decision was wrongly decided and so forth, once the Supreme Court made its decision, uh, uh, Gore, Very strongly participated in the uh, the peaceful transfer of power. In fact, he made it a point to say, uh, you know, uh, George W. Bush is my president. And uh, you know, I think if you were to ask me what are the list of things that uh, that symbolically represent American democracy. Very high on that list, I would put the transfer of political power from one person to another, from one party to another, as a strongly held American value.
0: Professor Ehrenberg raised a key point. Although many of Al Gore's supporters felt that their candidate was unfairly blocked from the presidency, Gore's ultimate concern was to safeguard the well-being of the American people. As a member of the outgoing administration, Gore not only accepted defeat but participated in the process that brought his opponent to power. Trump's refusal to make this same commitment to a peaceful transition of power is unprecedented. Historically, while candidates often fought bitterly in close elections, a mutual respect for electoral institutions and for the rule of law has allowed Americans to see the candidates they elected take office smoothly.
4: Since the beginning of the birth of this country, we've always had, this is the hallmark of this great country, the peaceful transition of powers.
1: That's Joe Shikarchi, a member of the Rhode Island House of Representatives, who we got the chance to interview. While Representative Shikarchi felt that President Trump's attempt to undermine confidence in the election was concerning, he felt confident that respect for institutions was strong enough in the United States to ensure a peaceful transition.
4: What we have to do as Citizens, as stakeholders, as elected officials, as as someone you said who's you know uh, makes policy, we need to combat the president's rhetoric that this is not the way that we conduct ourselves in the United States. That if you lose an election, you peacefully transfer power. And I believe um, his rhetoric will not have any substantial effect on, on the transfer of power in this country because I've heard from. Very conservative Republicans who I don't support and share their ideology, but I'm happy to hear them say there will be a a peaceful transition of power. I've heard from military people and former military people that there will be a peaceful transfer of power.
1: Representative Shikarchi's faith in our democratic institutions is strong enough that he doesn't believe President Trump can single-handedly dismantle them. This faith is based largely in the belief that his Republican colleagues would not go so far as to attempt to disrupt the transfer of power, He talked about how shared respect for electoral fairness was a bond that could bring some form of unity between the two parties.
4: Whether you like Joe Biden or not, I don't know if you had a chance to see 60 Minutes last weekend in the Lincoln Project. But if you see, there are groups of Republicans who do not share the uh, Biden philosophy on government and everything else, but they're all supporting him because he's a decent human being. And I felt the same way about President Bush. I did not like him and I did not vote for him. But boy, since we've had the last four years, I've grown to an unbelievable appreciation for him and a tremendous amount of respect for him and the way he conducted himself.
0: Clearly, Trump's refusal to commit himself to accepting the results of the election is a threat the likes of which Americans have not experienced. But it's not just that Trump's rhetoric undermines the security of the election. He even took active strides to reduce participation in the electoral process through voter suppression. His controversial time in office has implicated the entire Republican Party and its attempts to suppress both mail-in and in-person voting. Democrats have historically benefited from expanding voter turnout, and Trump's re-election effort depended heavily on restricting the vote and on claiming that mail-in ballots were fraudulent.
1: Greg Amori, a Democrat who represents Rhode Island's 65th district in the House, stressed that these kinds of voter suppression efforts are occurring all over the country. Voter suppression is built into our system, Representative Amore argues.
5: There have been many uh, Republicans both on the state level and involved in national politics who have talked openly about voter suppression. Uh, we saw Governor Abbott in Texas uh, not allow there to be as many drop boxes as there should have been for large counties um, we, we see in florida the, the, the case where in essence they've established a a poll tax where convicted felons who have served their time and and done what they ha- have needed to do in order to be uh, back into society uh, are are forced to pay exorbitant fines in order to uh, return to the voting rolls those are those are um, anti-democratic, uh, un-American, and, and I, I think it's like an underlying story that should get more light. Um, I, I, I can't imagine that a, a fair-minded American would think it's okay uh, for anybody, never mind a major political party in this country, to suppress votes. And I don't think the story's out there enough. Um, and in, in the particular aspects of it, and, and I understand that, you know, the average american person doesn't really have the time to dig into the weeds on this you know they're struggling with making ends meet and making sure the kids get to school and the lights are on and the heat is on and i get it but this is a it might not be a sexy subject but it certainly is an important subject
0: voter suppression certainly is an important subject and we wanted to get a better sense of its history in the united states to do so we turned to wendy schiller chair of the political science department at Brown University.
6: I think any attempt at voter suppression by any political party is a very dangerous thing. I, I, On Twitter, I'll sometimes just tweet out saying, you know, you're trusting elected officials. These are people who are incumbents who have been elected already. And they have an interest in maintaining their position. They want to stay in power. So whenever they make a change in voting access, You have to sort of look at that with a grain of salt and say, are they doing this because they want to make it easier for themselves to get reelected? And the only time that doesn't really apply is in the state with term limits, but even then, not everybody in the legislature is term limited at the same time. So I'm always very suspicious of proposals to restrict voting made by people who are elected officials. Because the only reason they want to restrict voting is because they want to uh, make sure that people who might vote against them don't vote and limit the voting population of people who voted them last time, which is a very you know, rational thing for politicians to do. That's why I think it's, it's bad to restrict voting always. Right? There isn't any good justification for making voter voting hard to do. This is a classic Jefferson-Hamilton argument. Hamilton wanted to restrict voting. Jefferson didn't. And Jefferson pushed hard for suffrage of white men who were not rich or property owners. And Hamilton says, no, 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 we don't want those, we don't want those people voting. they are not educated. And so this is a classic, it's been a classic uh, fight in American po- polity since we were founded.
0: According to Professor Schiller, then, we've seen this before. Unlike Trump's delegitimizing rhetoric around the election, voter suppression tactics aren't new to American politics. But, just like Trump's recent comments, they are deeply anti-democratic.
1: Clearly, the threats to our democracy raise a broad variety of concerns. In this episode, we've started to discuss the American historical context in order to think about how we can safeguard our democratic institutions going forward. In part two of this episode, we'll continue to explore similar questions by looking at the global context and rise of right-wing populist movements around the world. In doing so, we'll keep trying to examine what we need to do in order to make sure our democracy includes and responds to the needs of all Americans.